For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Potsy of the People. On this episode, we're joined by Tish James, who is running to be uh, the next Attorney General of the State of New York and is the current public advocate in the City of New York. And then we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. Uh, Today is a big day for me because it is the day that my first book comes out. The book is called On the Other Side of Freedom. You can get it today wherever you buy books at a bookstore. You can get it online at DeRay.com. And also tomorrow is the beginning of the tour. I'll be in 16 cities across the country. And this is not a traditional tour. This is really bringing people together in every city for conversations about where we've been and where we need to go. At every step, I'll be joined by, as a special guest, in New York City on Wednesday, September 5th. It'll be me, the comedian Hassan Minaj, the writer Toure, and the poet and activist Cleo Wade talking about a host of issues. And then I'll be on the road having these conversations. I want to share with you a passage from the book that's in the opening chapter on hope. This paragraph is where my heart is right now. It says, But a belief in tomorrow has never been hollow. It wasn't hollow to those who fought before us. We do not stand in the shadows of those who came before us, but in their glow. And that glow exists because they put forth the vision of the future and they fought for it. We did not invent resistance or discover injustice in August 2014. We exist in a legacy of struggle, a legacy rooted in hope. You know, hope is the fuel for so much of this work. I appreciate and thank you for being along with me and Britt and Clint and Sam and so many other people on this journey. Thanks for supporting the book. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. Did you all um, spend eight hours on Friday watching the Queen's funeral services? Because I did. I got dressed in a hat and some fancy shoes and a fancy coat that my mother gifted me uh, because I wanted to get dressed as the Queen, you know, would want me to, to honor her on that day. But I don't know if you all watched I it. I saw too. you out here stunting in your, <laughs> I was your like, new look. gear. I was like, look at Brittany on the way to church. But you indeed were just in your living room. <laughs> Listen, with my, yeah, it was just my living room and I was definitely wearing sweatpants under the coat. But, you know, and it, you know, I was, it's August, but still, I wanted exactly. to honor Aretha Franklin because, yeah, but that's what she deserved. I feel like it was the least I could do, no matter how hot it is. Did you all watch yeah, it? Yeah, good old, it was, Cicely uh, C- C- Tyson's hat was a spectacle to behold in and of itself. Listen, it was everything. And like- her reading, her her dramatic performance was like, Sicily, I do wish that Jennifer Hudson had come earlier because people had left by the time she got there. Yeah, but she was singing Amazing Grace, right? Which like you have to sing right before the eulogy. That eulogy um, left me with a lot of questions, but (laughs) most of the rest of the service was wonderful. It was such a fascinating day because it, you know, you see the McCain, uh, obviously the sort of McCain memorial and McCain funeral was over the course of of a few days in, in different iterations, but 
But I think the two funerals kind of back to back represented this really fascinating uh, way it sort of illuminated the different way that different communities grieve, right? And the and the different manifestations of mourning um, in in the black community as compared to the white community. And that's not to say that obviously people in all of those communities mourn the exact same ways. There are a range of different nuances and idiosyncrasies. But but it it was interesting to sort of watch the two side by side, right? To have uh, what Aretha imagined her her going home ceremony to be and and we all know that McCain specifically chose what he wanted his entire funeral to look like so um just as a as a social scientist in me um that was I thought that was really interesting to see so to what extent was cuz I know with McCain there was all this commentary on how he sort of planned everything out um and you know didn't invite Trump and you know had everything really scripted down to the T I'm wondering uh, for Aretha was that also the case or to what extent was was all this sort of pre-planned Oh, oh, oh. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly, but I cannot believe that as much of a stickler for detail as she was, that she did not have a hand in declaring what she wanted to be true at that funeral service, down to the crossing of her feet in her casket, down to the 24 karat gold carat gold casket, uh, down to her wearing a gold sequence gown and gold shoes to match the gold casket. Like I just, you know, there were multiple costume changes that weekend. Like she was in multiple outfits and I just, she was, she was, she paid attention to everything. I can't possibly believe that she didn't have a say in who performed, what they performed, et cetera. And I still can't believe the, uh, the Cadillacs. Oh yeah. The Cadillacs. That was incredible. Is that like a hundred of them? The pink Cadillacs. I think so. She didn't have a will, so, you know, it is unclear how much explicit direction she left with regard to the funeral or anything else. So That's fair. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how it plays out with the will, uh, given her fortune. You know, $80 million is a lot of money. 85, child. 85. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't make me miss some five. Don't, right. don't miss Miss Aretha's okay. five. She had probably had $5 million in cash in her pocketbook. I don't doubt it. <clears throat> On that last I don't doubt day. doubt it at all. She didn't play games. But rest in peace to the queen, most And also, uh, shout out to, to our friend Colin Kaepernick, um, who is uh, who, the new face of, of Nike's 30th anniversary um, of the Just Do It ad. Pew, um, pew, pew. And, and Colin has, uh, in, you know, in my mind, and, and this deserves a longer conversation, in my mind, Colin... Uh, Colin has already won, right? He's won in in the history of how this is going to be remembered. It feels very clear what this moment is going to be remembered by, and and yeah, who uh, who stood on what side. Um, and and Colin was an amazing quarterback, took his team to the Super Bowl. But uh, but what he has done and what he will continue to do with his life moving forward um, is really is really just remarkable. And the way that he's carried himself throughout the process, uh, I think, is is quite admirable. I hear that. You know, Colin didn't say anything. Colin never said anything controversial. He just said the truth that the police are killing people. State violence is real and it shouldn't be. Nike waited a long time to uh, to stand behind Colin. I'm happy that they finally did. It was a long time coming. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So we are recording this over Labor Day weekend. Uh, and part of what I always think about over the course of Labor Day is obviously the uh, broad multiracial coalition of uh, laborers and workers over the course of the past uh, 
century and, and even before that who have worked uh, tirelessly to ensure that we uh, have things like an eight-hour workday and uh, uh, and weekends and paid sick leave and all of these things that are incredibly important. The labor movement has had such important, incredible wins um, throughout uh, the last several decades. Uh, but I also think specifically about the unique ro role that that black workers and black laborers and black labor and black folks in labor unions have played uh, throughout the history of, of the labor movement because because I you know labor and the role that labor has played is immensely important uh, but it's also important that we recognize that uh, black people have had a complicated relationship with unions and a complicated relationship with labor uh, because they were not always welcomed and afforded the benefits that that the unions typically afforded um, the rest of their constituency and I think a lot about the Pullman porters as they were informally known and more formally known as the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters um, and they were the first African American labor union to be affiliated with the American Federation of Labor. They were founded in 1925 by A. Philip Randolph. Shout out to A. Philip Randolph. He's the man. Uh, and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters aimed to really improve the working conditions of treatments of black railroad porters and maids uh, who were employed by the Pullman Company, which was a manufacturer and operator of railroads and cars. And just a little bit of history of the organization, just because I think it's really important for folks to have a sense of who they were and what they did is that in 1867, the founder of the Pullman Company uh, seized this opportunity to to meet the company's labor needs by providing employment for, um, for the free slaves um, who had been freed in the wake of the, the Civil War. And so these were folks who obviously were in desperate need of employment, and so they were looking for, for kind of any job that would accept them. Uh, but Pullman exploited their difficult situation by demanding long hours and hard work and poor compensation, knowing that they didn't have a lot of ability to push back uh, because they were desperate for for any job uh, and, and for money to put food on their table. And frustrated with the Pullman company's policies, uh, the Pullman porters went up to Randolph and were essentially like, you do incredible work. Can you help us form this union? Because we're not getting uh, what we need. And so A. Philip Randolph uh, worked with them, did incredible organizing work. Um, and, and after about a decade of negotiation, the Pullman company finally agreed to begin negotiating good faith with the porters. And in April, on April 25th, 1937, it signed the first agreement between uh, an African-American union uh, and specifically African-American workers in a union and a major American corporation. Uh, and this was incredibly important because the contract between the Pullman company and the union brought porters the single largest wage increase that they had ever received under an agreement under this agreement and it also secured agreements uh, that established the 240-hour work month eliminated the system of determining rates by mileage and guaranteed pay for preparatory and terminal time and a reasonable amount of rest during trips so so all that's to say uh, the history of this organization is really important i think it served as the sort of foundation for much of the organizing work that specifically black folks did over the course of the next several decades and uh, and and not a lot of people know who the poem importers were so i think it's important that on a day like labor day we raise them up and the work that they did um, because it is, uh, it's, it's so important to having created the labor conditions that, that we all benefit from today. Clint, thanks so much for bringing that into the conversation, especially around the holiday that was just celebrated. I always remind people that Labor Day is, in particular, a holiday that was bought with the price, um, and that it is, in fact, workers who um, have continued to demand their rights and that their voice be a critical part of negotiations um, that secured not just that day off, but a lot of the advantages that people who work part-time or full-time enjoy every single day. And we can't take that for granted.
A. Philip Randolph in particular is such an important figure. A lot of people don't realize that he and Bayard Rustin were the central organizers of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, which of course happened 55 years ago um, last week, August 28th. Uh, and so he had an incredibly long um and storied career as an organizer um, and was central to a lot of the freedoms that we enjoy now. And he's a name that so many people don't know. I was taught about him um, as a very young child, but certainly not in school, uh, but by my parents, by things like Henry Hampton's Eyes on the Prize series, um, books and other films that made sure that his name was not lost in history. Um, but this is what we mean when we talk about what a travesty it is that in traditional school settings, the only kind of black historical figures that are often taught are Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman and Malcolm X, if we're lucky. Um, A. Philip Randolph is someone that everyone should know, um, not just for his work with the Brotherhood of, of Sleeping Car Porters, but for his work in the civil rights movement more broadly. The last thing I'll say uh, is that this is also a reminder that important elections are coming up and the kinds of freedoms and securities for American workers that people like A. Philip Randolph and plenty of people in the decades since secured for all of us are in jeopardy, especially as we look at states like Wisconsin, um, where Scott Walker, we know, has systematically and intentionally beat back the rights of unions um, and of, uh, of of labor and of workers, um, there are there are finally better options in um, in Wisconsin, and so it's important to show up during the midterms and make sure that we're not just making a statement about the kind of government we want, but we're making a statement about the ways in which we want workers and labor to be supported. Uh, we were able to beat back something called right to work in Missouri during this last election cycle. Uh, it is erroneously called right to work because what it actually does is it um, helps to dismantle unions as they currently exist, and those are just things we can't afford to see happen. So if you really want to be grateful for Labor Day, if you really want want to um, thank the spirit of A. Philip Randolph that make sure that you are showing up at the polls, you are educating yourselves about the candidates and the policies and how they will affect American workers, um, and that you are making decisions to protect them and not to harm them. Clint, thanks for bringing this up. There were some things I, I didn't even know about the Pullman Porters and their history, so I appreciate you pushing us always to learn. Um, one of the things that I learned is that uh, Thurgood Marshall was actually the child of a Pullman Porter. And you think about what it means, this legacy of so many people, especially black people, being uh, in labor unions, especially in a time when black people were just gaining any sort of political power. Uh, I was researching, too, about organized labor in the United States reaching almost its, its sort of height in 1973. More than one in every three Americans uh, belonged to a labor union, and one third of that was African-American. It's much less today, but one of the reasons uh, why it sort of peaked in 1973 is that the poverty rate dipped uh, to an all-time low then. And you look at what happens when uh, wages and income uh, require us to think about creating a safety net for people because the way capitalism works is that a safety net just isn't a part of the deal. And what we know uh, right now is that the wage gap is high, especially with men and women, especially black women. Uh, and we also know that the wealth gap is nearing a record high as well. And we think about what those solutions should be is that when we talk about things like a poor people's campaign, when we talk about Fight for 15, all of that in the end is trying to get to a wealth equation that is about equity and justice. So we know that things like reducing debt 
uh, when it's focused actually has an impact. We know that things like K-12 education does a lot of good, doesn't do anything about wealth. Uh, we know that homes are the single biggest asset that people can own with regard to wealth and that we should think about how to give people access to, to loans so they can buy homes. Like we know what the solutions look like. The question is uh, how we have them function at scale. And I think about my home state of Maryland, where I still live and you know Maryland just had a surplus of 500 million dollars at the state level in the same uh, set of years where the school system was fighting for the school system in Baltimore was like not being funded and had to uh, propose to lay off a thousand people to just meet ends meet and I say all that stuff to say that organized labor has been at the forefront of pushing for equity uh, most organized labor you know we have a thing with the police union so let's not even act like the police union is not a problem because the police unions are a problem. But the police unions aside, the rest of organized labor has had a traditional um, legacy of fighting for equity and justice across the board. So speaking about the police unions, uh, my news is related to that. Uh, and that is in California, the, the state's legislative session, so the period of time that the legislature is open for business, uh, has just ended. And a couple of really important pieces of legislation were passed, and one really important piece of legislation with regard to policing failed. And so uh, Senate Bill 1421, uh, which you know, we've talked about some of the bills that have been uh, on the agenda in California. One of those is Senate Bill 1421, uh, which, would which would open records of serious police misconduct, so uh, use of force. Uh, police shootings uh, that cause serious injury, uh, as well as sustained complaints of sexual assault or dishonesty uh, by police. Um, so California, again, just to recap, has some of the most restrictive and secretive laws around police misconduct records, uh, one of only three states which, with a law that specifically uh, prohibits the public from getting access, and even prosecutors from getting access to uh, police misconduct. And now it looks like that's going to change, uh, albeit moderately, by making those serious misconduct files now available uh, if this bill is signed. So 1421 passed the legislature. It's on the governor's desk. Um, we don't yet know if he'll sign it, but if he does, that would um, open up those critical records to get insight into police misconduct in the state. Another bill that passed this past week uh, was Assembly Bill 748, which requires police departments to release body camera recordings uh, within 45 days. Uh, and that is really, really important. We've seen how in many uh, cases, uh, either body camera recordings are not released or uh, it just takes years and years and years before you see the recording. I'm thinking about you know Alton Sterling in Louisiana, for example. Um, so those two bills passed. Those are really important, uh, would do a lot of good. They're sitting on the governor's desk. If you're in California, uh, I encourage you to call uh, the governor's office at 916-445-2841 and tell him to sign uh, those two bills, Senate Bill 1421 and AB 748. Uh, so that's the good news. The bad news is... Uh, Assembly Bill 931, which we've talked about in the past, which would have changed the police deadly force standard uh, to prohibit police from shooting people when it is not necessary, that bill failed. Um, it did not pass the legislature. Uh, and so now we are sort of left to wait until uh, the legislature reopens at the beginning of next year uh, before we hopefully can get any action on that. Uh, and what's interesting about that bill, you know, it is... Uh, it, it is potentially the single largest and most important and consequential bill with, with regard to impacting police violence in the state. Um, and not only did it fail, but around the time that it failed, 
a number of California assembly members received the maximum contribution from police unions. Uh, At least 12 assembly members received maximum contributions, $4,400, at the end of August, around the time that this bill was put on hold. Um, So just to give you a sense of why that bill failed, uh, I think that's a big important clue, uh, and it's why we have to continue to be uh, talking about this, raising raising awareness about these bills, um, pushing the governor to sign the ones that have passed, and next year uh, making sure that this AB 931, when it's reintroduced, gets across the finish line. We spend a lot of time talking about the structural issues, the things that are not as sexy but have a huge impact on the way decisions are made. And uh, the the proposed laws that Sam talked about, incredible sets of organizers all around the state have been pushing the legislate, legislators to, uh, to really uh, to advocate for them. Uh, we also saw that there's a lot of work to be done around the influence of police unions, especially the donations that they are able to provide to or the, the fundraising that they're able to provide for legislators. Uh, California is one of three states that has made uh, police records virtually impossible to be looked at in any circumstance. Uh, so an officer does something bad and it, it barely comes out in court. It certainly doesn't come out outside of court. It's just like a, a black hole. And again, that's a, a level of protection that no other person in public service is afforded. When teachers do things that are uh, wrong, it stays with them. And I say that as somebody who used to run human capital in public education uh, and certainly in a host of other places with the police. What I'd say, because uh, I don't have anything to add to what Sam said about the specific bills, but what I will say is pay attention that there's this work is happening where you are too. We launched checkthepolice.org a while ago so that people could check the police union contracts. And right now the Seattle police union and the city um, have gone through a negotiation period to change some parts of the contract and it didn't go far enough, but there are some uh, seemingly important changes that, that might help out with accountability. So if you're in Seattle, you should check that out um, and follow that process really closely. Uh, but also around the country, there are some of these contracts are coming up for the negotiating period. And this would be the time to put pressure on your city council or your mayor. They never get pressure about these issues. We have a great case study from Austin where the organizers in Austin pressed and the whole city council voted against a pollution contract because the clauses just didn't make sense. And the organizers got people together to pay attention to something that seems really wonky, but has a huge impact on the way people experience a policing community. So, uh, you know, some of the legislative stuff isn't very sexy, but it is important. And the last thing is that we actually sent in a set of recommendations with the Baltimore City Community Oversight Task Force. They had recommendations about community oversight in Baltimore. Uh, We wrote a letter outlining some things that we thought should be important. And I say that because uh, these are things that aren't as sexy, but they matter. And you'd be shocked at the level of policies and rules uh, that really are what we're up against. You know, when I sat on uh, President Obama's task force for 21st century policing, we talked a great deal about the importance of transparency. When we were kind of negotiating our final recommendations, I was very clear with the entire task force that, that the transparency of investigations, that the need for external and independent prosecutions and investigations was something that I was going to go to the mat for um, because it was one of the things that my community was very clear that they demanded uh, for the future. Um, and while this isn't all of that, this is certainly a step in the right direction if if this goes through. Um, Because the idea that police can police themselves is incredibly dangerous, especially if, as to DeRay's point, you've got entire systems that are entrenched and have been for years and decades and centuries 
in not being transparent and not being open with the community um, and doing so in order to protect officers, often to the detriment of community members. Um, and so I'm, I'm thankful to see this moving. And um, a lot of people, as DeRay said, ask why we spend time on the minutia, on the policy details, um, on all of the things that I think people want to readily ignore and just go for more simple solutions. And yet these are the things that matter a great deal. This is how we continue to create um, marks in the armor. And this is how we continue to push the ball forward. Now on to less positive news. As this drops, we will be readying ourselves for the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh, who is, of course, the nominee to the Supreme Court uh, to fill Justice Kennedy's seat. When Justice Kennedy left, uh, he left a seat open where when he occupied it, he was clearly on, in my opinion, the wrong side of history about a lot of things, but about 11% of the time actually ruled in favor of progressive issues, things like marriage equality, et cetera. Um, and so we're uh, going very potentially from someone who was with us 11% of the time to someone who will be with us 0% of the time in Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, here's what we know thus far about Brett Kavanaugh. We know that his name was one of several on a list from the Federalist Society. And if you don't know anything about the Federalist Society, they are an ultra right-wing conservative think tank um, that uh, tends not to agree with anything <laughs> that most of us believe who listen to this podcast. Um the Federalist Society created a list of potential Supreme Court nominees that included all judges who would promise to overturn Roe versus Wade. Interestingly, though, not only has Brett Kavanaugh made it clear that he would overturn Roe versus Wade, the precedent that protects um, the right to choose for women across this country, Brett Kavanaugh also doesn't believe that a sitting president can be indicted. And as you and I both know, Donald Trump is currently an unindicted co-conspirator in potentially many crimes. So it strikes me as very odd that that is the name that they would pick off of this list. Someone who believes that Donald Trump can commit these crimes and not face any punishment for them. Um, and someone who's going to promise to overturn Roe versus Wade. But here's the worst part. On top of all of that, we have not even seen his entire resume. Now, I don't know about y'all, but for every job I have applied for, they have wanted to have multiple interviews. They have seen everything I've ever written, tweeted, Facebooked. They've seen my entire resume. And then in the over 200,000 pages that we have of records from Brett Kavanaugh's time working in the Bush administration, there are 100,000 of those pages that the Trump administration is still keeping hidden from all of us. If you compare that to the kind Kind of combing through of records that Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan experienced, there honestly is no comparison. I mean, they went through every single thing that they had ever written, even scraps of paper and napkins, in order to find out what they were about and find out if they were actually confirmable. Uh, and so at the end of the day, I don't know how we could possibly, as the American people, be okay with senators who work for us confirming someone that we do not know everything about to a lifetime job. And Brett Kavanaugh is relatively young. He could be on the court for decades and wreak havoc on marginalized communities for a long time to come. And it's not just the pro-choice movement that is having this conversation because Brett Kavanaugh also poses a threat to voting rights, to immigration rights, and much, much more. Two really important things. 
One, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, abortions don't end. They simply become more dangerous. In fact, in the year before Roe versus Wade was decided, 90% of New York women who died from unsafe illegal abortions were black and Latina, which not only means that those procedures were much more dangerous, but it is the most marginalized women who will suffer. This is not just about abortion. It's about bodily autonomy. Historically, women of color, disabled women, immigrant women, and poor women have all had this stripped away from us at the whim of wealthy white people who don't even have a uterus. So your senator should absolutely refuse to confirm an unvetted and from every indication we have thus far incredibly dangerous candidate in Brett Kavanaugh. You know, watching this whole Supreme Court uh, confirmation, hopefully not confirmation uh, process, has been sickening. And frankly, I mean, it's been so frustrating to see Republicans, after seeing everything that they did to Merrick Garland, preventing him from becoming uh, a Supreme Court justice, which, by the way, would have fundamentally altered everything that we're seeing under this administration and potentially rendered uh, everything that has been done unconstitutional and inoperable. Instead of that, we have a potential second Supreme Court pick from the Trump administration. And so seeing what they're doing with these pages of documents, so uh, George W. Bush's attorney uh, said, his name is Bill Burke, he said that they had essentially compiled all the documents uh, that they wanted to withhold, that should have been withheld. Uh, and then Trump, the Trump administration actually said that that was actually not good enough, that there were documents that Bush's attorney said were cool to release that the Trump administration doesn't even want to release, that they're keeping secret intentionally. Uh, and the question is, what's in those documents? Kavanaugh, you know, 100,000 pages of his records are being withheld uh, citing presidential privilege. Uh, and, you know, these are records that involve his time serving in the Bush White House. And I know that, you know, over this past weekend, we saw a whole lot of, I would say, bad takes on President Bush and, you know, bipartisanship and, you know, saying that he was a good guy and definitely better than the current president. And we need to remember that George W. Bush and his administration engaged in an illegal war that ended up killing almost a million people and engaged in torture and all kinds of other unconstitutional behavior, some of which Kavanaugh was involved in, right? And so how do you withhold those? Those are the records that they are most likely withholding. And so, you know, it's really important that we get access to this. And it's important that in thinking about who this nominee is, it's not just that his resume, parts of it are being hidden, uh, but those are the potentially the most nefarious parts from some of the most nefarious periods of time in our nation's history. Uh, and so it's critical that we get access to these documents. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, we saw the Republicans play games with Merrick Garland and the first Trump uh, nomination. Now we're seeing them do this again. Uh, and just the prospect of seeing all of these games being played, seeing them throw out all the rules in getting people nominated to the Supreme Court and confirmed, and then asking the rest of us to just sit there and accept the rules and let these people serve for the rest of their lives on a court when they shouldn't have been appointed or confirmed in the first place is ludicrous to me. So, you know, I, I think taking a step back, it is something that we should be talking about impeachment. We should be thinking about, you know, it is possible for a Supreme Court justice to be impeached and removed. It is possible to actually correct for some of the tricks that Republicans are playing today. And all of that should be on the table uh, in 2020 because, you know, you can't just play all these games rig the system in your favor, and then ask the rest of us to follow the rules that you created and the precedents that you set 
in order to keep yourself in power. So I'm gonna just say that right now because I haven't heard enough of talk about, you know, what do we actually do about this in a substantive way? Yeah. Um, you know, well, I think Sam laid it out so well and, and so did Brittany. Um, you know, the only thing I'll add is that this is, as, as Sam alluded to, like this is far from an insignificant portion of uh, Kavanaugh's career, right? Like this is a three-year period in which he worked in, despite what our sort of contemporary revisionist history will tell you about the Bush administration, was one of the most egregious, dangerous, and violent uh, periods in American history, specifically, but not singularly, with regard to foreign policy. Uh, and, and it is quite possible that Brett Kavanaugh was directly involved in making decisions around uh, the, the legitimation of torture, uh, domestic surveillance, discrimination in marriage, and things that are, are run profoundly counter to the way that we conceive of, of who we want to be and, and who we aspire to be as a country. And the idea that we would not have access to three years worth of documents that might implicate this potential Supreme Court judge with a life appointment um, that would implicate him in in having potentially participated in some of the most uh, horrific parts of our of our history as a country uh, is incredibly unsettling and and is in many ways unprecedented right and 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 we are in an unprecedented moment in in a million and one ways right we haven't even talked about the fact that the the president of the United States is an unindicted co-conspirator. Uh, in in this in a crime right in a, in a in a crime that is ongoing um, and that we may have answers to soon but we may not have answers to for a while as has been the case for a year and a half there are a range of factors that that show us that we should be far more judicious than we're being um, and and that if we're not the the potential consequences are are incredibly far-reaching so my news is about Mississippi. 15 inmates in Mississippi, 15 people who have been incarcerated in Mississippi have died in the month of August, ranging in ages from 24 to 75. That is a lot of people to die in jail in general, but definitely in a concentrated period. The cause of death of the prisoners has not been officially released, but they have unofficially said that it was natural causes. And it's like, I don't even... Okay, like that is that is sort of wild. And they... Um, have asked the FBI to step in to help the Mississippi Department of Public Safety to assist in the investigation of the deaths. The FBI released a statement uh, last week saying that they would examine the facts and see if uh, any inmates' civil rights have been violated. Now, I bring this up because, you know, it's bad enough to be incarcerated. It's another thing when Something is happening inside of the prisons and jails that is inexplicable besides there's like a lapse in security, in process, and something. And to give you context, Mississippi averaged 51 inmate deaths per year from 2001 to 2014, or an average about four deaths a month. So having 15 in one month is... It's just sort of like a, it's so wild that it almost, when I read this story, I thought that it was, I thought it was a mistake. I was like, oh, 15 people died this year in Mississippi, which is bad in and of itself. And then it was like 15 deaths in one month. Something has to be wrong. So the ACLU, a lot of people are paying attention to what's happening. Uh, some people think that it might be extreme heat because of 
Uh, the temperature's rising in the South because of climate change. Some people think that there might be something else going on. I don't know, but this requires a deeper conversation, both about mass incarceration and about the health of inmates. DeRay, you mentioned that data on uh, deaths in state and federal prisons. And you know, looking at the study from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, what they find is that there have been about 50,000 people who have died uh, in state or federal prison uh, between 2001 and 2014. And they attribute the vast majority of those, about 45,000 of the 50,000, to quote-unquote natural causes. Uh, but what you mentioned there, DeRay, and what we know to be true is that in many cases, what is deemed natural causes is not natural at all, but something that is caused by the environment that people are being subjected to while they're being incarcerated, uh, by the choices that are made. So we've heard about folks who've been incarcerated with, with no access to air conditioning in 100-degree weather in the South. Right. We've heard about in the previous episode, we heard how uh, prisons are located near environmental waste dumps in places that are so toxic uh, that it contributes to negative health consequences and potentially even death. And so, you know, it's important when when the state sort of pushes back against claims that uh, something nefarious is going on within the prisons that are causing these deaths and says, you know, that's just natural causes. Uh, oftentimes, uh, the natural causes aren't natural at all and in fact are uh, are very intentional and could have been prevented uh, had this system uh, valued the lives of the people uh, that had been in prison in the first place. And part of what this brings up for me is is the fact that Mississippi spends uh, in a, a, such a a small amount on their health care for, for those who are incarcerated as compared to the national average. So Mississippi spends... Uh, on average, about uh, $3,770 to be specific, according to the Pew Charitable Trust. Uh, and the national median is 5720 So Mississippi is spending about $2,000 less per incarcerated person uh, than, than the median of, of the entire nation. And, and that's important for a, a range of reasons. But part of what it makes me think about is that oftentimes we have this conversation around interest convergence in the conversation and, and discourse around mass incarceration. And we're like, oh, well, people on the right are interested in the fact that we spend $80 billion a year on, on incarcerating people. And we need to, you know, if you're a fiscal conservative, um, you're interested in reducing the amount of money that we spend on prison. And if you're uh, somebody on the left, you are, you know, disillusioned and uh, and frustrated with the carceral state as an entity and its history of oppression and, and racism, et cetera, et cetera. And that if we can meet in the middle and recognize that we both have an interest in ostensibly creating a smaller uh, prison system, at, at, at least um, creating a smaller prison system that decarcerates fewer people, um, that we will, that, that, that is the sort of logic that, that flows from that, right? That we will then, if we, if this group of people want to spend less money and this group of people uh, want the system to be smaller, then if they come together, we can begin to massively decarcerate uh, the, the population. And that's not to say that you should not work with people on the other side, but I think something that is important to know is that when people frame things purely from an economics standpoint, there are a lot of, a lot of ways to save money uh, in the realm and in the context of incarceration that don't include letting people out, right? I think that sometimes people think that, oh, well, if we spend, the way to spend less money is to uh, let more people out of prison and put less people in. That is true. 
but you can also spend less on, less money on food. You can spend less money on healthcare. You can spend less money on uh, correctional officers. You can spend less money on a whole range of things that actually affect the quality of life of the people in the prisons. And then you have somewhere like Mississippi who's spending $2,000 less than national median on their healthcare costs in ways that, that simply cannot be peripheral to a conversation concerning a, a large amount of prisoners who are dying in this state. So, so I think that that's just something for us to keep in mind um, and that we have to can push the conversation beyond its, it's seemingly sort of uh, beyond its economic imperatives and, and really ground our, our conversations around mass incarceration and efforts to decarcerate in, uh, through a moral framework. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian-approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. 
There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And now, my conversation with Tish James. Tish James. Yo. <laughs> thank you for joining us today on Party of the People. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, where are you from from? Brooklyn. What part? So I was born in Park Slope. Okay. And I live in Clinton Hill. Got it. I taught in East New York in Star City. Oh, sure. Know it well. Yeah, yeah. Know it well. And you are the public, ab- or public advocate. Correct. Can you explain what that means to people who are like, yeah. what is a public advocate? Because there is no public advocate. There's no elected public advocate elsewhere in this nation. There's some appointed public advocates, but I'm the only elected public advocate, which is a checks and balance on the mayor of the city of New York, second in line to the mayor. Okay. Um, so checks and balances on the mayor. We have um, jurisdiction over uh, city agencies, um, provide um, uh, transparency and accountability, making sure they're... F- they're um, meeting the needs of New Yorkers and following up on services, providing them with services, um, serve on the NICERS board, which is the city's pension board, okay. also have the ability to introduce legislation um, in the city council, preside over the city council at their stated council meetings, and have the ability to initiate litigation. So, And uh, if anything should happen to the governor right now, I would become mayor automatically. If anything would happen to the mayor. Correct. Got it. So it seems like you're like, the behind the scenes making sure things don't break and making sure that the government's sort of running what would be something that New York that what would be something that the public advocate has done that like people didn't know was the work of the public advocate so we're not really behind the scenes we're sort of we're sort of up in your face okay and so we've been in the forefront on protecting the right their rights of um tenants okay. here in the city of New York so um, we have brought great attention to landlords who are harassing tenants and who are evicting tenants by any means necessary. So they're evicting them by construction, by har- harassment, by violating rules, and just trying to raise the rents um, because of these market forces, which is having an impact on low income and people of color in the city of New York. Um, as you know, in certain neighborhoods, so, well, actually all throughout the city of New York, um, we've got gentrification on steroids. And so it's resulting in the great displacement of a number of low-income residents here in the city of New York and a significant number of people of color, which is why in the city tonight we've got 70,000 New Yorkers who are homeless. Um, New Yorkers becoming too expensive and the rent is too high. And you were the first African-American woman elected to citywide office. Yeah, it's pretty sad commentary that here we are in the 21st century and I'm the first black woman elected citywide. That is sort of wild. That's pretty sad. What has it been like to 
to be a trailblazer in that respect and hold office in, in a city, the biggest city in the country? So I haven't really focused on being a trailblazer because it's nothing more than a historical footnote. Um, because I know a lot of people with titles who do absolutely nothing with it. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's really about producing results and representing the interest of marginalized and marginalized communities and invisible communities and uh, making sure that government works for them and that their voices are heard and that they have a seat at the table. How does your identity inform the way that you think about the issues and, and the way you think about the work? Clearly, obviously, who I am, an African-American woman, um, obviously has... Uh, you know, formed and influenced my thinking on a lot of issues, particularly social justice. As someone who used to work as a public defender and as someone who's seen and tasted and felt discrimination and racism, I, I know it up front. Uh, I know it close. I know it, I know it intimately. And so obviously um, want to make sure that all individuals are respected in, in this city and in this state and in this country and, and that um, uh, rights are protected. Um, and uh, that's the reason why I became an attorney and the reason why I went to the school that I did, Howard University, shout out to Howard. Um, <laughs> it's uh, my reason for getting up each and every day, you know, fighting for the little guy. I love it. Now, before we go to your your next run, I <laughs> wanted to ask about um, the recent the recent bills before the New York City Council about ride sharing and the cab. Uber. And Lyft. And Lyft. And Juno. And, and all the others. All the others. Yeah. Um, what was your, you know, I had somebody from Lyft on here. Yeah. And I haven't had anybody from the city. So, yeah. you know. Sure. You are an elected official in the right. city. What, what was your take? So I didn't have a vote, but I presided over that hearing. And what I heard was the stories of um, taxi drivers and their, some of their family members were in the chamber at the time. Their family members, their um, their loved ones who committed suicide because they couldn't make ends meet. On average, they earn around $30,000. And so they've been put at a severe disadvantage. The license that they held, the franchise that they held, the permit that they got, um, they were sold a bill of goods. They were told that it you know, would be worth a lot of money, that it would provide them an opportunity to g- gain entry to the middle class. Um, in reality, it hasn't. And part of it is because um, others have entered into the market and they've had to work from sunup to sundown. And so a number of them have committed suicide. Um, and so basically there's this bill puts a moratorium uh, on any additional licenses for a lot of these uh, other services. And um, there was a lot of, you know, dissent um, from a lot of these other hail services. Others argue that yellow cabs don't go into communities of color and that there's great discrimination. And with Uber and Lyft, et cetera, um, that's one way to remove that discrimination. And so it's a double-edged sword and, it, and it's difficult. And I, I think we're gonna study the industry at this point in time and uh, try to come up with measures to address discrimination and to provide opportunities for those who wanna be a part of the hail service and um, look at these medallions, which are worthless right now, to these yellow taxi drivers. Lastly, another argument that was made in support of this legislation, this moratorium, was congestion in Midtown and climate change and clean air. So all these arguments were made. I mean, at the end of the day, the speaker decided to move this bill forward so that it can be studied, so that the industry can be studied, and so that we could accommodate the needs of all interested parties, and the bill passed. 
I will I will say I hope um, you know I don't know what your role as a public advocate is around yeah. the taxi yeah. and limousine commission but as somebody who and I I will bet my everything that you've had an experience where a taxi wouldn't yep. pick you up mm-hmm. is that it was sort of surprising to see the mayor and um, the speaker the speaker come out and talk about the new office of inclusion mm-hmm. which I'm like pro sign me up but the Office of Inclusion seems to have a largely education role. And like, I just think it's sort of, it seems sort of wild to suggest that the taxi drivers just don't, the taxi drivers just don't know that they need to be educated that discrimination is bad and doesn't seem to come with any enforcement power. So it seems like it, and I'm totally willing to be challenged on this, but it seems like lip service that like, if you actually thought discrimination was bad, it didn't like just get bad with the ride sharing cap. It seemed, it was been bad for, you know, back for a long time. For a long so time. Don't point at me I a long am, time. <laughs> <laughs> so I, <laughs> that was shady. <laughs> Y'all didn't see that. Uh, but, but so I, I'm just not, I'm struggling with the, I'm struggling with no, that part and, of it. And plus given the fact that we've got the Human Rights Commission, which does have enforcement powers, why the need for another agency? You know, it begs the question. There's no question about it. Um, but with no the, more resources. With no additional resources. And you, you've, and it's duplicative, some argue. So I understand your argument. But at the same time, you know, we've had a number. Of, what do you say to the drivers, the families of the drivers who committed suicide? Because they just can't make ends meet. That's and, a good question. And, you know, Uber and Lyft offered that $100 million to try and offset it. And that would be something to say to them, right? And right. Right. What I do think is true is that people started using the apps because of experiences with Correct. with taxis. Yeah. And that like this is what markets do, right? Is that when right. like you, you change. Yeah, when right. you're like cause I, I'll never forget the last time I was out, it was like three o'clock in the morning. All these white kids had just gotten out of the bar. I'm like <laughs> clearly standing in the middle of the street and they and just you like you can't get a cab. I just can't get a cab, you no, know? And it's like they didn't recognize you? They they were not checking for me <laughs> or anybody that looked like me, you know? And like that is what happens. That's so what it, happens. So it is like a you know, sometimes industries die and they are reborn because right. of what happened. So and I'm sure. You know, like people need to make a living wage. Like, yeah, I'm yeah, signing yeah, up yeah, for that. Yeah. I just don't know if it's. I think it is not fair to suggest that the suicide, the result of the right apps, just like well, showing up in the world. Well, I think part of it is because they left notes behind. It's the economics of it all. And two, congestion is a major problem in the city of New York. And I guess the argument can be made well, we need to do a congestion tax, we need to limit deliveries. Uh, we need to put tolls on some of our bridges. So that those are some of the arguments that have been made to deal with congestion and not to disrupt an industry um, which serves everyone and addresses the issue of discrimination. And so I'm not saying that Lyft and Uber are going anywhere. They're still on the street. You can still, you know, go on your app and get an Uber right now. All that we are doing is right now halting things, studying it, and see where things are in the future. So... Okay. That's all that we're doing. Just wait and see. Okay. But you can still. And it's like, why? Why is there? Why is there a cap before the study? That feels like the taxi industry is sort of moving things behind the scenes. And <laughs> no, I, you didn't I, vote, so <laughs> I, you know, so this isn't even. This is really me, just like. No, this advocate. is a good. This is a good philosophical discussion. I'm just saying. I, I'm. I'm. All I'm saying is, you can. You can still get your app. It's a cap right now. It's just a wait and see um, moment. Let's just study the industry, and I suspect. That there'll be litigation. 
I'm all about it. I will say too, this is, I only know because on this episode of the podcast, this is my news, is that uh, there's actually a historic decrease in driver's licenses, the lowest number of driver's licenses. It's like the biggest decrease that has been recorded. Um, sort of while for 16-year-olds and 19-year-olds, it's like down 20, 40% wow. uh, since 1983. So people aren't getting driver's licenses. And most people suspect that it's because of the ride-sharing apps and things like that. Yeah. And it actually isn't. So when you survey the people, it's only like 17% sort of give a suggestion that it's because of like public transportation or another right. transportation. Most people, it's like they can't afford it or just don't need it. Or, so right. it's fascinating. Okay, now... But, so, but you know what also we need to do? We need to fix MTA. Oh, and yeah. as attorney general, what could you do about yeah. that? I mean, well, we, can I know- look, we, we can look into the finances of the MTA because um, there's still a question as to whether or not they still cook in the books. Um, and so, oh, I don't know about this. Well, let's, let me just yeah, transition. Sure, so for sure. those of you listening that don't know, Tish is running to be the next attorney general of the great state of New York. News flash. <laughs> so tell me about, I don't know, you know, people are really, they are paying attention to what's happening with NTA. Tell me, I, I never heard the cook in the books thing. Yeah, there was a, a, um, a report done years ago by a former c- uh, controller, John Liu, um, which un- discovered that, in fact, MTA had two sets of books. Um, mm. And so we need to look at the MTA. We need to look at their finances because the system, um, there's an ex- increasing number of individuals who are riding uh, the MTA, particularly in neighborhoods that have resulted in increased um, residential development like Williamsburg and Greenpoint and downtown Brooklyn. Um, and we need, and the MTA system needs to be uh, corrected and fixed and improved and it needs to be more reliable. Um, and the conditions need to change. And uh, unfortunately, and you could do something. You could you could investigate the books as a yeah, general. Yeah, yeah. We can look at it um, and see whether or not uh, um, your fares are actually going to capital improvements or uh, okay. they're going elsewhere. Now, why attorney general? Why not another office in New York City? Or why attorney general? So you know, we all know that our former attorney general had to step down based on some allegations of some women, this, uh, sexual harassment uh, and assaults, et cetera. Um, so, so there's a vacancy. It happened less than three months ago. Um, and at the time, um, I was thinking about another office, mayor, but that's 2021. But given this pivotal point in our history, given where we are right now, given the current occupant of the White House, given the attacks on immigrants, given the attacks on women, the attacks on people of color, given all that I've been trained as a social engineer, as a, a social justice attorney, it was, it was uh, this is a, a culmination of my professional and legal career. And so I've decided to run for the office of attorney general. And only, and if I get elected on September 13th, I'll be the only, the second um, black female attorney general elected in this nation. Wow, who was yeah. the first? The California United States. Oh, Kamala. Kamala Harris. Yes. Who was also from Howard University. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Look at y'all. Now, I saw the criminal justice platform that you yeah. released. And one of the things that was unexpected and that I, in a good way, yeah. was that you talk about the secrecy law around police records, which yeah. nobody, you know, we talk about this a lot and people act like I'm making it up. But then no. I saw your platform. I was like, okay, Tish. Yeah. So for people that don't know about the secrecy law, can you explain it for a second and why you are coming out saying that it is not necessarily a good thing? So individuals who are involved in criminal actions um, who are involved in investigations their records are not subject to the sun to sunlight, um, and police sh- specifically. Police specifically, and they're shrouded in secrecy, and so individuals cannot obtain their records to determine whether or not um, this police officer had 
previous complaints filed against him, had disciplinary actions filed against him, was involved in other um, uh, street encounters which resulted in the death of individuals. You, it's shrouded in secrecy, um, and that's just not right. And so it's critically important that, for instance, Pantaleo, who was involved um, in the death of Eric Garner, um, uh, that uh, in the event that um, he's brought up on disciplinary charges, and he will be, um, and hopefully dismissed um, or terminated from the force, um, that we can't obtain his records, his previous records. There's just something wrong with that when we know that if you were arrested today or if I was arrested today, if we had uh, if we had a criminal record, it It'd would be, be on the on front every, page right. of the paper Everybody would tomorrow. Know. Everyone right. would know. And it's just not right. And so all we want is fairness. And all we want um, is transparency. And all we want is sunlight. The other thing that I read that was notable was about the prosecutor's role yeah. uh, in in these cases, the special prosecutor or the attorney general's role. Can you just explain the importance? You specifically highlight the importance of codifying it yeah. and not just having it be wrapped up in an executive order. Can you explain why you think that that... Some people would say it's already an executive order. The last attorney general was against it, but like it's in the executive so, order. Why does this matter? So this you? was in the aftermath of Eric Garner and we, the Office of Public Advocate, we originally wrote a letter to the attorney general and to the governor asking that he appoint a special prosecutor um, to be appointed in cases involving um, civilian death at the hands of the police. Um, governor responded, appointed uh, Eric Schneiderman. But it's a, it's not a standing order and it's not codified. It's not permanent. Okay. It's temporarily. It can be terminated tomorrow. And so what we want is a permanent order um, designating the attorney general, hopefully Letitia James, um, and the next attorney general, whoever that may be, uh, as a special prosecutor in cases of police-involved shootings. In all the jurisdictions in the state? All 62 counties. Got it. Now, would you consider um, would you consider legislation that prohibited officers who were dismissed for a range of things from being hired in another jurisdiction? It's something we haven't considered, but obviously it's an issue that we should look at. Um, the Office of Attorney General has the ability to introduce program bills, legislative I, legislative proposals to the state legislature, um, just like the Public Advocate's Office. And obviously advocacy is going to be a big part of the Office of Attorney General going forward. Let me also say that there is a bill currently pending before the governor right now. Um, it's a bill which has been put forth by um, Assemblymember Nick Perry, okay. who is the chair of the Black and Puerto Rican and an Asian Caucus in the state legislature, uh, which would basically provide some checks and balances on prosecutors, particularly given all of the cases that we are seeing resulting in I read about this. prosecutorial misconduct. And this is modeled after uh, an existing body. Correct. And it's on the governor's desk. Um, and we well, explain like the prosecutor. So for people that don't, right. like you spend a lot of time in the legal world. Yeah. Uh, what it seem what you are what it seems like you're arguing is that there's some prosecutors who are withholding evidence who yes. are just like engaged in what we would consider to be misconduct, and that there currently isn't an apparatus to hold them accountable Correct. in any substantive way. And this bill would hold them accountable. So let's say they an, uh, a district attorney has exculpatory evidence, evidence which, which which would suggest that the individual who is currently facing charges um, didn't do it. Didn't do it. Okay. Um, and they're withholding that for whatever reason. Um, and then this individual is convicted and stays in jail for 25, 30 years, something like that. This would um, provide some accountability to the prosecutor in question. And, and Right now what happens? Nothing. Literally nothing or like just not a lot? Just nothing. You can't sue. They're wow. immune. They're immune. They're, there's nothing. You just get 
you can, you know, you get, um, I mean, I guess you, you can sue civilly, but nothing happens to that prosecutor. You get some, um, a judgment, you get some, um, resources, get some money, and that's you it. You get like a settlement from like the state or from something. From the state, that, yeah. but nothing happens to the prosecutor oh, in wow. question. Not even a slap on the wrist, nothing. And so there has to be some sort of accountability. And so Who's this, fighting against this? Well, um, there was a newspaper today that came out against it, uh, or yesterday, I should say. Um, and, the, of course, the district attorney's coalition um, are opposed to it, and it's on the governor's desk, and we are urging the governor of the state of New York uh, to sign that bill. Has Cynthia Nixon said anything about it? Um, I believe Cynthia Nixon supports it. Okay. Um, I will send you and your team. Nebraska has a really interesting bill. Okay. Uh, Nebraska? A, I know. Who knew? With a Republican governor <laughs> around not letting officers who've been engaged in misconduct travel like okay. around to other jurisdictions. I also was shocked about Nebraska, but it passed. It go like, Nebraska. Is, go, go Nebraska mm-hmm. on this issue. Governor mm-hmm. has some other issues that are not we're not so <laughs> proud of, but this one is interesting. Uh, also, immigration is a yes. big part of your, and you know, New York City is a... Sanctuary city. Yep, sanctuary city. And a place where the immigration conversation just means something different than other places. So I'd love to know what you, what are you, you know, I read it. But I'll start with like what what do you think the Attorney General can do in the face of ICE, in the face of Sessions, in the face of Trump? Is it only cosmetic things? Like is it like, you know, all the releasing a million statements, being like no. you protect people? Or we like- could we could push back and protect the rights of New Yorkers. Um it's really all about states' rights and it's also about enforcing federal laws. Uh, because we do know that the federal government, unfortunately, is closed for business. Um, and so we've got to, one, protect the ability to serve as a sanctuary city and not be penalized financially. This administration would like for New York City to lose funds as a result of uh, New Yorkers standing up for the rights of immigrants. Um, we uh, need to make sure that ICE is removed from our courthouses, individuals, immigrants who go to court to get an order of protection or witnesses in cases. It has a chilling effect on... How do you uh, make sure they're removed? Like, what do you, what's the mechanism? So right now what we are doing, the federal government, unfortunately, um, they are um, embedded in in our courts all across the state of New York. And I literally, um, um, uh, you know, seizing immigrants and in some cases, you know, deporting them and reporting and reporting their status. And so what we would like to do is challenge the ability of the federal government to come into our state courts and do just that. You'd like sue them? Yes. Oh, because you can't just like straight up ban them? No, no, no. We would have to uh, um, initiate litigation. Um, And then um, obviously there's a proposal right now where uh, um, they're contemplating a proposal. So individuals, immigrants who applied for, let's say, food stamps or public assistance, that would be a means to denying you uh, a green card. Um, and we think that's wrong because that penalizes. Explain that to me. Why, so how is it, like, if you why? applied for any type of public benefit. Oh, you're like stealing from the government in their mind. Right. And therefore okay. you would be a. Um, <laughs> they are just. Yeah. You, I guess the, the notion is if you previously relied upon public benefits and you now become a citizen or you um, a resident. Uh, then you, I guess, would continue to be a dependent upon state services or public services. I guess that's the notion. Um, so you would sue to get this change, or is there another mechanism to do that? No, it would be all be litigation. It would all be litigation challenging this administration on a, lot, a number of its practices. And I just think that individuals um, who get services are not getting it because um, 
they want to be dependent upon government, it's because of their 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 standing, their economic standing at that point in time, and they need um, an assistance at that point in time. And we should not be discriminated against low-income individuals or individuals who are living in poverty who basically need some assistance from time to time. I think that's wrong, and that should not be a bar uh, to getting your citizenship and or a green card. Um, and or an, uh, um, an asylum petition, um, uh, seeking an asylum petition. We should stand up for DACA. I uh, represented an unaccompanied minor here in the city of New York, uh, a young child who, was, who came from Honduras fleeing um, violence, um, whose parents unfortunately were murdered in Honduras, uh, came to this country, um, and... Uh, we did a, an asylum petition, which was granted. And, you as a public advocate or like as, as a... As, as a, a private citizen, as an attorney. I did it pro bono. And uh, his uh, petition was granted, and he just graduated from high school and is doing great. I also filed a petition as public advocate um, and as a private citizen on behalf of a child who was separated from their parent. Um, we did a habeas corpus petition. Um, that petition was granted. The, f- uh, the mother and her, and her child or daughter were reunited. But unfortunately, now they face deportation. And what we're trying to do is assist them in getting an asylum petition, even though um, this federal government is limiting individuals' um, rights to seek asylum in our country. Can you explain one thing? So I did. I, so there's a part in the immigration platform that talks about protecting 19 to 21 year old children. Those are the un- unaccompanied minor, and as part of the DACA process. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's what we were doing, okay. and so what they would like to do is end that program. And there's a significant number of. Can you children. explain this for me? Can you explain it for everybody? I just didn't. I was like, what's a night? Like, what's a child? What's a 21 year old child? That's what I was like. So there's two. This? So I think people are confused. Uh, well, there's a lot of confusion. Because, I'm confused. Okay. I'm confused. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's you just a, blame me. There's a group of individuals who came to this country who were fleeing. Um, violence and and persecution. Yes, and um, and those individuals were protected under DACA, which is what this f- um, president would like to eliminate. Yes, um, and they cover individuals between the ages of nineteen and twenty one. Got it. And so that's one group of young people. Then there's another group of young people who, as you know, have been separated from their parents. Yes, and in some cases, these their parents self deported um, and or were um, um, deported. Um, again, you know, were deported by this administration. And we, what we are trying to do is reunify these children. And in some cases, it's very, it. very difficult. And this administration, unfortunately, is challenging the rights of so many New Yorkers, but particularly immigrants. He's rolling back all of the progress that we have made on women's rights, on the environment, which is why it's so critically important that individuals vote in the midterm elections. Uh, because if he should... Uh, be successful in nominating this um, Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. A lot of the progress that we've made in this country um, as people of color, as immigrants, as people of good conscience is just going to be rolled back. Now, there's so many things that the public advocate does that most people don't know, but has a huge impact on their daily lives. What are some of the things or are there things that the attorney general does that people like, don't think that that is like what the attorney general does, but it's a, an important function? So th- let me explain the attorney general's office. So um, 60% of what the attorney general does is state defensive work. You represent state agencies. So you trip and fall on state property. You, gotta, you, you put in a claim. The attorney general goes in 
and you know defends state property. Um, or somebody sues like the Department of Education, or something. right? Or you sue the Department of Correction. It's the Attorney General and who you're steps the lawyer. in, Got right? It. Or they seize your home. Let's say a state wants to seize your home and build a road. It's the Attorney General who defends that right. Got it. So that's um. Don't be seizing people's homes. Well, they, dish. they come well, on. Well, <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, you know, well that like for instance in downtown Brooklyn. Um, at the arena, they seized homes to build that arena. Oh, they did. Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. They did. So, were you public advocate then? No, I was a city council member then who fought that. Um, so, so most of it is defensive work, not sexy work. Doesn't get a lot of attention, but that's the majority of the work of the attorney general. Then there's the affirmative litigation, and that's like patent and practice cases. Okay, uh, uh, somebody upstate is discriminating against a member of the LGBT community. Someone's discriminated against an African American. Um, and they're doing it repeatedly in a county or something like that, affirmative litigation. Um, a, a business is defrauding uh, consumers, uh, affirmative litigation. A housing policy um, that says uh, if you are disabled, you can't rent this apartment. Then there's the advocacy work um, where you lobby on behalf of your program bills, the bills that I mentioned, the bills to close like the pardon loophole. Um, this president wants to pardon individuals um, from federal crimes, uh, the, the state attorney general could step in and still prosecute that individual for state crimes. Um, and Is that not possible now? No, there's a loophole, and that's why we just for the close. state, this, just for New York, or like in every. Place? If it's for for New York. I can't speak about any other states, okay. but I know in New York, we there's a particular loophole that we need to close to allow individuals uh, not to be pardoned for state crimes. So there's also the bills that we spoke of, um, like for instance, this. Um, it's not, an, it's not an attorney general's program bill, but, uh, for instance, a bill to address the criminal justice system, which is sponsored by the attorney general's office. So there's advocacy work, bills that need to be passed in the state legislature. And then there's, lastly, enforcement. Uh, we need to enforce environmental laws. We need to force reproductive laws. We need to force health laws. Um, what, does that laws. Mean? what does the attorney general do around enforcement? Give me an example. So... Um, Let's just say there's dumping on Long Island. I went to Long Island recently, and there's businesses that are dumping um, in public spaces in communities of color. Okay. And so we need to enforce environmental laws. We need to go after this. So business. you'd go sue them. Yes, we would go. Got sue, it. Got yeah. It, got it. So that's basically what the attorney general does. In How the many state. lawyers? Um, there is over 650 attorneys. It's one of the largest law firms in this country. It's the preeminent law enforcement agency in the state, and I would argue in this nation. And where are the headquarters? Are they here or are they in... So their, their primary office is located um, in Manhattan, okay. um, but they have regional offices all throughout the state of New York. So just about in every major city, there is a regional office in Albany, in Buffalo, there's an office in Syracuse, there's an but office... But when you win, your office will be in Manhattan. It will be in Manhattan, but I'm going to work very closely with the regional offices. I previously served as the head of the Brooklyn regional office because a lot of people think Brooklyn is, you know, is a city, it's so large. So there's a Brooklyn regional office, there's a Harlem regional office. Oh, wow. Yeah, so uh, there's an Albany regional offices. And so um, there's regional offices all over the state. And what do you think qualifies you to do <clears throat> this work, given that it'll be so different than the roles that you've had before? Well, it, in, to a certain extent, it, it's not because... Um, I'm a former public defender. I've defended a countless number of people in the criminal justice system defending the Constitution um, because I believe when people are at their lowest, they still need to be defended because no one's above the law and no one's too low to be below the law. 
Two, um, I'm a former assistant attorney general. I worked in the office as head of the regional office. I've um, been involved in cases um, in primarily in Brooklyn where individuals were victims of predatory lending. And there's a lot of deed theft in Brooklyn. Hmm. Um, a lot like of somebody steal, like when my grandma dies and I somebody rewrites the name on yeah, the deed. Yeah, and take, right, exactly. Then there's That's um, like a thing? Like people do that a lot? They, uh, they do it quite a bit. Who knew? Um, and it's happening a lot in central Brooklyn. How do you stop deed theft? I know this um, is a so tangent, we, but I'm just So curious. what we have done in the, the city council, it basically says whenever anyone transfers property, now you have to be notified by the local agency. In the past, you weren't notified. So you could literally walk and say, I'm Mr. B, I own this house, da 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 and you transfer it to somebody. And um, now... Um, in the past, whenever there was a transfer of, of a deed, no one was notified. It just happened. And then people would get mortgages off those homes. That is wild. Yeah. And so now you got to be notified. Okay. So a simple notification. Um, but unfortunately, it still happens. Because deeds are sent to, because notices are sent to individuals at the, at the building in question. And let's say you live in Florida, but you own property in Brooklyn. That is, who knew? I need to like ask them. I need to get a deed expert on here. Right. I'm fascinated by that. Okay. Um, okay. So. So Brooklyn Regional Office. So Brooklyn Regional Office. So we did a lot of predatory lending. We did consumer fraud. I was part of a team that worked with the Civil Rights Bureau on the stop and frisk abuses of NYPD. Then went on to become a city council member where I drafted laws and continued to do litigation. I mentioned the Atlantic Yards Project where we sued the developer. Um, worked in the state legislature where I crafted, drafted, and negotiated bills. And then as a public advocate of the city of New York, I've written more bills than all previous public advocates, and that includes Mary de Blasio, who was the previous public advocate, Betsy Gottbaum and Mark Green, have a chain transformed the office where we've introduced leg- litigation and sued the mayor, sued the governor, uh, sued quite a few landlords, and uh, on behalf of vulnerable individuals and just on behalf of New Yorkers in general. And we've introduced legislation, we've done litigation, we've done advocacy, we've resolved over 32,000 constituent complaints. So we are best suited to become the next attorney general because we've done it already. And now um, we'll do it on a larger scale all throughout the state of New York. Now, as we come to an end, I did have another question for you as public advocate. Is the turnstile jumping as a crime? Yeah. needs to be civil in nature, not criminal. Can you do anything about that as attorney general? So I think, so the city council came up with a proposal that it would not be prosecuted in criminal court, but in civil court, it would be treated as a civil offense and not a criminal offense. Did that pass or is that still a proposal? Um, So I don't think, I'm not sure if it passed. I do know that if you jump over a turnstile and you don't have ID, you'll, you'll go through the criminal system. If you have ID, it's my understanding um, that you'll be get you'll get a summons, and then you'll have to go to the civil part as opposed to the criminal part. Okay. And, and it's a, it's all it's all of a it's an effort to reduce the um, over criminalization of yeah. people of color. It's like eighty percent of the people who get arrested who get which is to, which is why we need to reduce a lot of these uh, criminal offenses and to make them civil. For instance, riding your bike on a sidewalk is a criminal offense. Changing that sitting in over a park. Over age, like in um, anybody. Oh, anybody? Anybody. 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 In, in I had Chicago, to stop, I had to stop police from stopping kids from riding their bike in public housing because they were riding on a sidewalk. It's And I argued it was just an excuse to stop and frisk them. Anybody? So in, anybody. We just covered this in the news. It's like in Chicago, it's like over 
the age of like it's over the age of like 11 or something no it's well the city council just not repeal this like what's going on so it's an issue it's now civil it was part of the package and in, in, including jumping over the turnstile um and then issues like such as sitting in the park after dusk that's a criminal offense and i never knew when dusk was and it was always um individuals of color who were prosecuted for this marijuana arrest which is why I support the decriminalization of marijuana. What else? Oh, these catch-all crimes. Disorderly yeah, why conduct. Wasn't, why wasn't like? Why isn't the dust thing just not a, an offense? Like, why does it still have to be something? Because you and I know that the enforcement, civil or criminal, mm-hmm. the disparities still show up. I think part of it had to do with people were overprotective of children in, in, in playgrounds, and I think at the time, I think there was this sensitivity to children who were being abducted. And so individuals who were sitting in playgrounds by themselves near playgrounds where children were playing, I guess they wanted a basis for the police to ask you what you were doing at a playground by yourself. I might give you that, but the bike thing? And I don't, I and, and, I don't and I don't buy that because maybe you're just resting. Maybe you're reading a book. Maybe, you know. And I'm only saying because you saw the marijuana data that yeah. I just saw that 90% of the people are black and brown. And yeah. that is... That's right, which is why we know that's we're moving right. towards, I think, by the end of the year, hopefully by the end of the year, decriminalizing marijuana. But we got to make sure that people of color have a stake in it. We need more um, minority businesses involved in, in, in having dispensaries. Uh, we need to address the issue of criminal records and expunging criminal records or sealing criminal records. We need to make sure that they're not all located in communities of color. Um, so all these issues and more we've got to deal with. We've got to deal with these arbitrary limits on how many people can enter into this business. Like it shouldn't require you to have like $5 million in order to have a dispensary. Um, we need um, some sort of um, um, uh, ability for you to get insurance, for you to get bonding, all these issues and more. Now, one of the questions that we ask everybody is what is a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Ooh, a piece of advice. Never stop fighting. Always stand up and always realize the power that, that you have that's in your hands and remember where you come from and whose legacy you stand on. And where can people go to learn more about you and the campaign? They can Google me. It's L-E-T-I-T-I-A. James. People often refer to me as Tish, T-I-S-H, James. Have you been Tish your whole life? I'm Tish my whole life. My whole life, Tish. <laughs> Is that what your parents called you? Yeah. Uh, well, they called me other things, but anyway. <laughs> but it's uh, Letitia, Tish James, and I'm running for attorney general. And the election is on a Thursday. And that's important because it's, normally it's on a Tuesday and they change the date to a Thursday. And so we don't want uh, to have happen what happened to a Congress member in Queens who lost his election because people didn't get out to vote. We need individuals to know that this is a Thursday and they need to come out and vote. And they need to come out and vote. And when is it? The 13th of September. Why is it not November? Why is um, it not that's on the general election. That's the oh, midterm yeah, election. It's a Democratic primary. Got it. And so I need individuals um, to come out and vote. Because in New York City, it's all about primaries. But this is a New York State. So I'm running statewide. So even all of your listeners upstate need to come out and vote on September 13th. And once again, make history. And once again, elect Letitia James, um, who I believe is the best candidate for attorney general who understands justice, and who is a true fighter, and who has a record of getting things done. This is not an academic exercise for me. This is about protecting marginalized and vulnerable people who are under attack right now and standing up for our values and our principles as New Yorkers and as Americans, because everything is at stake right now.
You can find me at tishjames2018.com. You can tweet me at tishjames. You can Facebook me at Tish James for AG, or you could Instagram me, which doesn't last long, Tish James 2018, and it's T I S H J A M E S 2 2018. One word. Boom. Ask Sherwin Williams and get 30% off duration and super deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 